In our last episode, I spoke with a white teacher, Nicole Post, about the pushback she received to talking about race in the classroom from parents and ultimately by her administration. And a lot of times I was told, you're not, you're, you're going too fast. You're just going too fast. This is a private school. You know, it's 114 years old. We can't go that fast. And then I would come home and I'd see the trauma uh, and, and the death on the news and, and people in my community suffering. And, I, um, I th- and I'd say, I'm not going fast enough. Teaching While White, a podcast to help move the conversation forward on how white educators can be consciously and intentionally anti-racist in the classroom. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. In this episode, we continue to examine the resistance and why it is so important to be talking to our students about race, no matter the place, no matter the age. I spoke this time with Kimberlyn Jackson, a Black educator who wears a lot of professional hats. She's an education consultant, diversity practitioner, a student success coach, a blogger, and a podcaster. But no matter what she does, Kimberlyn advocates for students who have been historically marginalized, and she coaches the people who teach them. I started our discussion by asking Kimberlyn about her previous job with the Pennsylvania Department of Education as a school climate and culture specialist. And so I had to ask her, what does that title even mean? I like to say a lot of my job is um, filling things out, whether that be face-to-face, brick and mortar, or whether that be virtual, because even over Zoom spaces, you can still get a feel for what things are like, who has the power in the room, um, things of that nature. And then the culture piece is how do we conduct ourselves in creating those spaces? So what are the practices that we utilize? Um, What are the agreements that we have in spaces? What are the norms, even though I kind of hate that word, but um, how do we exist in these spaces? So I wouldn't really say that the terms have changed. I would say that um, it becomes a learning process of what that means in a particular space of particular people, right? And then kind of existing and meeting people where they are and how they encapsulate those words, but still drawing attention to the climate and culture uh, pieces that are at play in the room. So how does race figure into climate and culture? Yeah, so race is something that we we can't escape, right? Um, It is usually the first thing, especially as a Black woman, it's the first thing that I notice when I walk into spaces. I'm often counting people um, to see how many people look like me or to see um, how many people are considered uh, part of this global majority. Um, So when we're having climate and culture conversations, that's usually what it does center around are those racial interactions. Um, A lot of the spaces that I work in are predominantly white spaces, and therefore white people don't necessarily have to think about race often. So uh, just me saying white, they usually cringe. And, um, you know, and I just kind of say it over and over again to desensitize that because you are, you are white. I am not, right? Like, it's okay. Um, But even teaching people that that is okay. I like to tell a story a lot of times um, when we go, for instance, let's say we're in a supermarket 
and a child um, might say, look, mom, she's black. Right. And that's my wish. Like as if it's a secret. And I'm like, I am black and I'm proud to be black and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. So changing the way that we even think about race is a part of that climate and culture conversation. If we have this educational space and students can't even bring that piece of themselves into the classroom or point out that somebody else's race is different, how are we ever going to have these courageous conversations to break down the isms that are happening in the spaces if we can't even talk about the fact that we're a different race? Were the students primarily white as well in the districts you were working in or? It's a mixture. Sometimes it's predominantly white students. Um, most times they they consider it diverse, right? Whatever that means. Um, meaning that there are some uh, speckles uh, and sprinkles of differences there, right? Um, so yeah, it kind of depends on uh, where the school districts are located, whether the student population mirrors the teacher population. But what we know is that the majority of teachers are white women. So regardless of what the students look like, I'm primarily working with um, white educators and primarily female. Which is why we started teaching while white, because um, it's 84 percent or something like that. Yeah, um, it's over 80 percent. Yeah. So. For teachers who are in districts and buildings that are primarily white with primarily white students, and there's this pushback coming in the form of questioning whether we're teaching critical race theory, and we're not here to debate what critical race theory is and all that, but why is it important for students, regardless of whether they're white or they're not white, or if teachers are white or not white, to be talking about race in school? What does it have to do with school? Yeah, I'm sitting here like nodding my head off because I feel like I have this conversation all the time, right? So if we go back to this concept of climate and culture and culture being the way that we do things, um, what I like to express to our uh, educators is culture is not determined by race right? It's only one factor of how we do things. It's the way that you do things in your home, which is very different from the way that someone else does something. So regardless of whether we're talking explicitly about race or we're talking about how we deal with religion or we're talking about how we identify with gender, gender expression, our sexual identity, if we're talking about our uh, socioeconomic status, like all of these are intersections that are still present. Race is only one piece of all of this. And even though it's the piece that we center on the most, it's not necessarily the most important piece. All of the pieces of what make us up are a part of that culture. So we have conversation about that. And that usually turns the light bulb on of, oh, I didn't think I had a culture is what I usually hear white people say, which is very interesting to me because I feel like in my black body, that white people are very connected to their heritage, right? So I hear them identify as, you know, I'm Italian or I'm German or I'm Polish or whatever, right? And all I've got is black. Like, I'm like, I'm just black. Like, I don't, I don't have like that connection, right? So it, it's sometimes odd to me that it's not, um, it's not so present that everyone realizes that there is a culture, even if you are the same race as someone else. So why do we need to talk about this then with students? Why do students need to know about this? 
Yeah, it's that awareness piece. Um, I think about one of the things that I uh, do most frequently is social emotional learning. And that has to do with our self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, positive relationship skills, and responsible decision-making are the five components of social emotional learning. And what it does is it teaches students empathy. It teaches students that everyone doesn't have the same experience, right? So when we talk about things like bullying, there are always anti-bullying prevention programs and things of that nature in schools, right? Getting students to unpack what's happening here. What does it mean to be different? Um, Breaking down the culture, if you will, of whiteness being the norm, right? So having those conversations about what makes you you and what makes me me is something that's important to build um, better students, better children who are going to take this next generation to the place that it needs to go and not being afraid to have conversations conversations about differences. Um, It's just so many times that we shy away from these topics and they're considered to be taboo. And research shows us that kids as as young as two or three years old recognize that there are differences. But as adults, because we've been conditioned to believe that we're not supposed to talk about it, we suppress that natural curiosity in our children. So it allows them to be able to express their curiosity. It allows them to be able to have those conversations, to ask questions about things they don't understand, but ultimately to be better human beings to other human beings, right? So if I can put myself in someone else's shoes and empathize with what they might be dealing with, then that's only going to help me as a person. So now we don't have as many isms coming forward because we're educating the, the generation that comes behind us to really have a more open mind and really think about things in um, a way that is going to build positive relationships as opposed to all this divisiveness that we see. example of a specific time you encountered a classroom, a culture, a school culture, where people weren't talking about identity and difference and race and what that looked like, as opposed to what you feel like it could be? Yes, so many. Oh, my God. Uh, What does it look like? Um, It looks like tension, um, like in the body. Right. So uh, tension, nervousness, um, it doesn't feel like a safe place to express opinions or to take instructional risks for that matter. Right. So if you think about um, a child needs or a person just in general needs to feel some sense of connectedness to a space to be able to be fully engaged. So if I feel like I have to leave a piece of myself outside of the classroom, or if I feel like my classmates have to leave pieces of themselves outside of the classroom, then is it really safe? For me here, can I really express what I think? Can I really ask the question, right? I was, um, in my schooling, I was brought up to just blindly accept things, right? I wasn't necessarily taught to be a critical thinker. 
And one of the things that I vowed when I started teaching was to teach my students how to think and how to question and how to examine, um, you know, their opinions and the things that they believe. But if I'm sitting in a classroom where I don't feel safe, I can't possibly go through that critical thinking process and enter that executive state of my brain. I'm still in like a survival mode or I'm still in this emotional space of trying to figure out if I can connect. It's just it's not uh, an environment that's conducive to learning. Right. So when like your question earlier, when you asked why do this in school, because it's only going to free students up to be able to truly access the best parts of their brain and to really think about all of the connections and all the possibilities and all the dreams that they could have because they know that this is a place where I can bring my whole self into the space. Have you seen a space, a classroom, a school where it was the norm to make all of these parts of ourselves explicit? I think it's in progress. Um, I can't say that I've seen a full example. I've seen pieces here and there, right? So I've seen some schools, for instance, that uh, latch on to a tangible part of this process. So for instance, a school that may be well-informed with trauma-informed practices, right? So they are asking those questions of what happened to you as opposed to um, what's wrong with you or why did you do that, right? But in that process, the work that I do is really in helping people to draw the parallels to this work, right? Because to me, it's all the same thing. So trauma-informed practices, we still have to be self-aware. We still have to have empathy. We still have to know how to build positive relationships, right? If um, we look at a school, for instance, that has restorative uh, practices or restorative justice, we still got to think about all of these pieces. If we have a school that's on an SEL journey with social-emotional learning, we still have to think about all of this. So what I do is I like to honor where the school is um, in their process and then infuse whatever is missing um, into that so that they see this is not something else to do. Like so many people feel like, oh, it's another thing we got to add to the plate. No, you're already doing this. This is just another lens that you're putting on, right? And, you know, we both have our glasses on here, right? So when you go to the eye doctor, right, they're like one or two, one or two, right? And they're fine tuning your lens so that you can see most clearly. That's how I like to describe all of these layers is fine tuning that lens. So I have not yet seen um, a place that has been ready to bring all the lenses together, but I've definitely seen places where I know that it's going to happen because they're open and willing to um, allow themselves to be pushed to that next place. Let's just talk about pushback a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure maybe you've encountered it once or twice in the work. <laughs> <of you. laughs> a couple times. Yeah, once, you know, maybe you can think of it. Uh, <laughs> so what, what do you think the resistance, what does the resistance look like and what do you think it's about? Um, so I'll answer that second part first. What I think it's about is fear and fear of, um, 
losing power, not necessarily consciously, but the fear of how is this going to affect me if I change these practices, right? So I do not believe that people consciously say, I'm not going to do this because I like being on top and I want to stay on top, right? I really believe that it is the subconscious thing that, um, that drives the way that things are addressed. So it looks like fear. It's rooted in fear of being called a racist, Right. Which is a huge thing um, for white people not wanting to be considered a racist. So, you know, I want to I'm, I'm a good person. Right. So that good, bad binary, you know, I'm a good person and I don't want people to think I'm a bad person. So that means that, you know, I don't want to unpack that, because if that shows that I'm a bad person and that I'm a racist, then my whole life has been a lie. Right. It comes with uh, defensiveness. And, um, like I usually hear questions like, well, well, you, why, why, why are we even talking about this? Right. So then that's when we kind of start getting polarized and falling back on our talking points that we got off whatever news station, um, because that gives me an out. And now I don't really have to talk about me. I can talk about all the other things, um, without addressing the me part of it, um, it has even sometimes manifested as outright bigotry and being called names. I can remember a specific uh, school that I was working in here in Pennsylvania, and um, I was talking about social emotional learning, wasn't even talking about race, okay? Just social emotional learning. <laughs> where are we with um, SEL in the school? Like, where are the adults with SEL, right? Because again, in my work, a lot of times people think about these initiatives as fixing kids as opposed to dealing with mindset, right? And dealing with adult mindset. So any initiative that you start, like adults have to be well on board and well versed in these initiatives before you teach it, right? Just like in our, if you're teaching math, like you need to know your math. You're not learning your math as you're teaching the kids. Like you need to already know it, right? So I was asking about social emotional learning, you know, where are you all as adults on campus with uh, social emotional learning? And the principal said, um, well, I don't really know what you mean. So Okay, no problem. So I explained, right, these are the five uh, components of social emotional learning. So as adults on campus, where are you all with exhibiting these um, these competencies? And he says, um, I don't I, I don't know how to answer that. And I said, OK, well, that is an answer, though, isn't it? So he said, well, who do you think you are? Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And I kind of just shook my head like, mm mm, mm mm. Right. But just being challenged, this white man being challenged from this black female body, like he just couldn't take it. Um, so it also manifests as aggression. So what do you say to someone who says we shouldn't be teaching about this because it causes people, it causes students and faculty to feel guilty, to feel ashamed? What, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is that guilt and shame is learned behavior. Um, and it's something that is a personal thing, right? You choose 
to exist in guilt and shame. And it's something that you've learned and that has nothing to do with anybody else but you. So I do challenge people to examine that. Why are you choosing guilt or why are you choosing shame? Because there are so many other choices that we can choose here, right? We can choose to um, consider this a learning opportunity. We can choose for this to be a growth opportunity. We can choose to sit with these emotions and do some introspection to figure out the why behind it. We can choose to go back to our childhood and really figure out why we're walking around with guilt and shame, because just in general, those are toxic things to walk around with, period, right? That's one thing. (laughs) that I say, right? Because that is not, that doesn't have anything to do with the race conversation. That is a personal thing. So that's like boundaries that need to be set up. That's some, some introspective work that needs to be done. So then other than that, my question would be, what is the this? When we're saying we don't want to talk about this, what is the this? People? Differences? respectful environment. What is, what is the, this, right? Um, because again, if we take race out of it, we're still people who should be good people to other people, creating safe spaces for people to learn. So even if we never talked about race, is that the, that, that you don't want to talk about? Right. And if it is strictly about race, well, then I think maybe we should unpack that. Why don't you want to talk about race? What's going on with that? Where did you learn that it's not okay to talk about race? Who told you that? So for me, it's not necessarily where someone is per se on their journey. It's about the why behind it. It all goes back to the internal work that has to be done. And that's usually what people are trying to run away from is that internal work, right? You mentioned earlier that you work with adults who need to have this conversation with each other, but also with themselves. Could you Mm -hmm. say more about that? When you say it comes back to the personal, what what is the work that you help new teachers yeah, with? Yeah, we that? usually start with um, social emotional learning. That is the safest entry into all of this work. Um, so it starts with the first thing is starting with a self care plan, right? Um, how do you handle stress? How does that manifest? What does that look like and sound like for you? Um, how does it cause you to interact with other people? Right. And then once we create this self-care plan of recognizing what, uh, we naturally do, then we can add this layer of now social identities work and thinking about the different intersections that you bring, um, when you enter a space. So then once we talk about that, now it's like, oh, recognizing that other people have these same things, right? Um, so, Honoring all of that and and having those conversations about the differences. Um, But then from there, it becomes very actionable, right? So what does it look like for one to have this conversation? Or what are the questions that you have that you've never had a chance to ask that maybe you feel would be unlocking 
something in your brain, right? So providing that opportunity for people to get their questions asked. I think I'll also center a lot on grace and space are like my two uh, cornerstone agreements, if you will. So giving people grace in the process and recognizing that we are all victims, if you will, to systemic isms. Um, None of us came out of the womb and said, I want to have problematic thinking, right? We're all we all were programmed in some way or another. So putting that out up front, I like to be very candid in my work. So for instance, I went to um, Fisk University and it's a historically black university, but I told you I was raised in New Orleans. So in New Orleans, we had basically three types of people. We had black people, white people, and Vietnamese people. Those were like the only types of folks, right? And everybody was just lumped in. It wasn't like, what kind of black are you? It was just, you're black, you're white, you're Vietnamese. So my understanding when I left to go to college is that all black people were created equally. So I get to Fisk University and I see like, all of these Black people from all across the nation, from all of these countries and things of that nature. And um, I'm standing in line and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, look at all of these. I think I said, look at all of these African-Americans. Like, this is, uh, this is amazing. And someone turns around and she's like, I am not African-American. I am not from America. And I was like, oh, but you're black though, right? I'm from the Bahamas. I'm from Jamaica. I'm from various places in Africa, right? And in my blindness, I had no idea. Like I really didn't know. So even letting people know that we all have bias, we all have bias. So it's the unpacking of the bias that's important, right? So even as a Black woman, I had bias regarding what it meant to be Black because I was only exposed to one type of Blackness that I didn't realize that there are so many other different ways to be Black. So having those conversations as well um, helps to bring down the defenses and the guards a lot of times for people to say, oh, well, if that happened for her and she's facilitating this, then maybe I'm not so bad, right? Um, Eradicating that good, bad binary (laughs) is um, hard, but it's definitely some of the work that needs to be done. Um, So again, normalizing the fact that we all do have bias and we all do have ways that we think that we want to change. So what do you say to people who are like, this This is hard, this is a lot of work, I might say the wrong thing, I might do the wrong thing. We have a lot of listeners who are the only person in their school building who are even thinking about this and who are experiencing mm-hmm. a lot of pushback, right? So, so two things, like what do we need to say to ourselves when we're in isolation and everybody else thinks you're maybe crazy for trying to do this work? And then... How do we meet with with resistance with the most grace and space, yeah. I guess? Um, so when people say it's hard and it's a lot of work and all the things, I say, you're absolutely correct. 
It is extremely difficult. It is a lot of work. It's probably super duper uncomfortable, the most uncomfortable that you've ever felt in your life. You are absolutely correct. So let's begin, right? Um, Just because it's hard and just because it's difficult doesn't mean that we don't do it. It means that there's a bigger payoff on the other side. So every time I think about overcoming some type of challenge, I think about how proud I was of myself for overcoming that challenge. And yeah, it was hard, but it was worth it. So that's what we center on is the fact that the work is going to be worth it and you're going to be a better human at the end of this. Um, And we're doing this together, right? This is not a destination. Like none of us arrive at this place of ultimate, you know, illumination and all right, my journey is done. There is always something else to learn, right? So um, let's go. Let's, Let's see what we can learn this time. For those who are doing it alone, I would say start somewhere right? You start. And there's this concept in when we think about the theory of change, the coalition of the willing, you start and you find those who are willing and that's where you start, right? And even like I said, I usually start my work with social emotional learning because, you know, folks aren't ready for me to come out the gate and talk about all the racial things. That's fine, but that's a start on the process. And you have those conversations and you continue to lead by example and model what that looks like. And I think centering in on data. So being able to show how safe your classroom is in comparison to somebody else's classroom, how your students are better thinkers um, or, or more willing to take instructional risks than in somebody else's classroom because they feel safer generating that type of data. What is it about this class that makes you feel safe? What is it about our conversations that helps you to feel seen, right? And creating those types of opportunities to be able to rely on in the times where others might say this isn't worth it or it isn't working, being able to show, no, it is. Um, But also recognizing it's a process. You are not going to snap your fingers and then everything's going to be great tomorrow. That's not how it works. Um, This is a process. So giving yourself grace and space in the process. Sometimes you're going to say something that's wrong. Yep. And then that's when you own it. Thank you. You thank the person for calling you out on it and you choose to do better. Right. So when I think back again to my experience being at Fisk and I was corrected on calling every black person African-American, it took me a minute. But I finally was like, well, thank you so much, because I won't make that type of statement again, because now I know better. Right. Um, And I think we all want to do better. And the only way we can do better is when we know better. So let's go. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to say to, so knowing that our audience, I mean, we have a lot of white parents who listen to the show too, who are sort of confused. Like maybe I don't want my kid to hear about this stuff at school. I don't want them to know the history that's going to make them feel bad or whatever it is. I don't know. Anything else you want to, yeah, I would say embrace the discomfort, embrace it. Um, and recognize that the discomfort is stretching, but that's the only way that we can grow is if we allow ourselves to be stretched. Um, And in that discomfort, there might be some hard truths 
that one might have to deal with and how they were raised or how they were programmed um, to believe life works or conversations should happen. And that's okay too, right? So it's a forgiveness process. And that's why I talk about that grace and space, right? It's like giving myself grace for what I didn't know and now I know, but then also forgiving myself for the missteps that I made because I didn't know, right? So now I own it, now I know, and now I do better. Um, It really is a choice. Like we have a choice every single day to do better or not. So I, I, in my heart of hearts, do not believe that there are people who choose violence intentionally every day. Like, I do not believe that. I believe that the majority of people want to be better people and they want to be better for themselves. They want to be better for their children. They want to be better for their families. So why would you turn down an opportunity to be better? Because it's uncomfortable, right? So embrace that know that this is a step on the journey of being better and it's okay. So when the when the missteps happen, it's okay. It's a part of the process. We all make them. We all make them. Um and it's okay. I know better, I do better. Thank you. Now I'll do better with that, right? Um so I think that's the biggest thing that this doesn't have to be some daunting work where, you know, you're out at a protest on the front lines. You know, the protest can be right in your home of protesting against the way that we've done things here and now we're going to do something different. You know, the protest might be in your friend group where they were making jokes about a certain population of person and you choose to say, I don't think that's funny. Right. That that can be the protest. It doesn't have to be this big performative act. And we actually prefer for it not to be a big performative act because this is not a performance. This is real life. Right. So take those small steps. Give yourself grace in the process and know that there are there's community out here that are doing the work where you can find a safe space to say man i do not know what i'm doing <laughs> right because even that is real like i keep messing up oh my gosh um have those moments and then guess what when you're done with your moment we have another choice ahead of us so what are you going to choose that time was Kimberlyn Jackson, an education consultant, certified success and purpose coach, and host of two podcasts, Mining My Black Ass Business and The Whole Child. You can find the links to her work in the show notes. After speaking with Kimberlyn, I'm left wondering yet again about the myth that persists that talking about race is what is divisive. Racism is divisive. And if we can't talk about it, nothing changes. And that is the real threat, not the guilt and shame of white students, but the threat of change to those who don't want it. According to the 2021 Educator Confidence Report, 90% of K-12 teachers believe that social-emotional learning improves academic achievement. 
And according to McGraw-Hill study, also from 2021, 81% of parents believe that SEL is not emphasized as much as it should be in schools. Kids learn better when they have the knowledge and skills they need to develop healthy identities and manage emotions. So what do students have to say about their experience of talking about race in schools? Stay tuned for our next episode where we ask students across the country just that. We want to hear from more students. So if you have students at home, you teach some, or you are one of any age, we want to hear from you. Please call our voicemail at 857-285-2231 and tell us about your experience of talking about race in school. That number again is 857 857- 285-2231. This episode was underwritten by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative and produced by Stephen Smith. Our theme music was written and performed by Henry Needham. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward, and this is Teaching While White. Teaching While White.